Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Lucas. And this is Double Blind. Scientists like concision. The media likes certainty and everybody else likes excitement. We're here to bridge that gap. We want to provide accurate, engaging reporting and discussion of breaking science news. So if you're curious, come with us. We think it'll be a lot of fun. This week on Double Blind, here comes the sun, modeling solar panels after plants. And facing crime, how learning to recognize facial expressions could reduce criminal behavior. Lucas, why don't you start us off today? Thanks, Jesse. Uh, let's this week talk about something that's kind of wonderful, solar power. Okay. I think we can all agree it's a great idea. Yeah. You know, the sun's got lots of energy coming towards us. It's freely available. All we have to do is harvest it. Now, having said that, there's also a lot of issues with solar power. There's a lot of hurdles to overcome. Right. First of all, the one that's talked about the most is efficiency. Today, the average solar panel is about 15% efficient. Right. So that's that's not doesn't sound very efficient. What's that in compared to other forms of power generation? Well, it's really hard to compare, right? Because solar power is kind of on its own category. Okay. But essentially what that means is you need to cover a lot of surface area with solar right. panels, right? And you know that's it's not terrible. There's a lot of people who argue that efficiency isn't the bottleneck, but right. it's something we were we're trying to improve. Yeah. So efficiency is one issue. Second of all, is one that's talked about a lot is storage, right? So right. you can only generate power when it's sunny out. Mm-hmm. So you need massive amounts of batteries to store this energy. Right. And there's many issues with batteries, and that's definitely a discussion for another podcast episode. Right. And third of all, which is probably actually the biggest issue with solar panel, is price. Solar panels themselves aren't cheap. Yeah. In fact, they're very expensive. There's a lot of government subsidies and such, which has contributed to the price coming down in recent years, but they're still prohibitively expensive for most situations. Right. And this is largely due to one particular material which is used in them, silicon. Silicon's used in pretty much every modern solar panel, and it is very expensive to manufacture. Okay. So a study published last month in the journal Science from a team from UCLA, um, Los Angeles, thinks that two of those issues, the efficiency issue and the price issue, can be greatly improved by turning towards plants as inspiration. Oh, cool. Now, plants, of course, harvest energy from the sun all the time. They do this using photosynthesis. Yes, we've seen the Magic School Bus episode. Exactly. So you'll know from the Magic, Magic School Bus episode that photosynthesis is a way to use solar energy to convert water and carbon dioxide to oxygen and a carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. And the key part of that being that carbohydrate, because the plant can then take that, store it, and use it as energy later. Right. That's very efficient, I guess? Yeah. It's a good way to store energy. Okay. Now, to explain what happened with this study, let's start with a very brief explanation of how current solar panels work. Okay. If you're driving along the highway, you see a solar panel on the side, this is basically how it works. Essentially, you can think of a solar panel as a sandwich of two layers of silicon. And by adding other materials to the silicon, they can cause these two layers to have opposite charges. Uh, Okay, 
cool. So specifically what they do is they add a bit of phosphorus to the top layer and that gives it a negative charge. And when I say a negative charge, I mean it has excess electrons. Okay. So electrons are these negatively charged particles. It means there's more of them than there are protons, which are the positively charged particles. Right. And then they add boron, most commonly at least, to the bottom layer to give it a net positive charge. Okay. So that means it wants electrons. It's hungry for electrons. So we've got these two layers which have opposite charges. Which means we have voltage. Exactly. We have electrons wanting to travel from the top layer to the bottom layer. Yes. And we also, of course, have the sun. And the sun's emitting photons. And these photons are flying through space, flying through the Earth's atmosphere, and we see them as light. When they hit the top layer of this panel, they excite the silicon atoms. They add energy to them. And they can actually knock electrons off of these silicon atoms. Oh, cool. In the top layer of the panel. And remember that if the electrons are being knocked off, they want to flow towards the region of positive charge, okay. which is the bottom layer. Right. And that's pretty much it. All that's left to do at that point is you've got a flow of electrons. All you need to do is collect them and force them as a current through a wire towards your battery or your light that's bulb really cool. or whatever you want. Yeah. And then you have a current. Huh. That's really neat. I did not. I, I did not know how solar panels worked. That's a super simplified explanation as a heads up. And there's many different types of solar panels out there, but that's the basic idea. Yeah, that's enough to get the basic concept. Yeah, what you need to take away is this is a process of charge separation, right? Okay. We've got the silicon atoms in the top and we use light to separate the negative charges and then generate energy using them. Okay. Now, this process of charge separation is also a big cause of these inefficiencies in solar panels because the charges want to recombine so badly that they often are able to recombine before the electrons can be forced through that circuit to generate electricity. Okay, so they kind of try and go back into the system. Exactly. They're, they're desperately trying to get to that region of positive charge, mm -hmm. and they can do it often. So essentially, if you can more efficiently keep those positive and negative charges separated, you can increase the efficiency of the solar panel. Cool. Now, plants also use charge separation in photosynthesis, but their cells have highly specialized microscopic structures which are designed to keep these charges separated. So that's happening in chloroplasts, right? Yeah, those are the photosynthetic organelles inside of plant cells. Okay, cool. So these structures which can keep charges separated, are much more complex than the sandwich analogy we added earlier for solar panels. Mm -hmm. So an active area of research is how can we learn from the structures inside plant cells and apply those to human-made solar panels? Of course, because generally nature does things pretty well. Nature's pretty good at things. It's had some practice. Yeah. So the team from UCLA wanted to mimic these structures. Cool. and thus keeps charges separated more in solar panels and thus make them more efficient. Okay, cool. So, first of all, they started off by learning from nature and not using silicon, using instead carbon, the okay. thing that makes us makes up us and plants and makes sense, living things. It's yeah. also a lot cheaper. It's also a lot cheaper, you're yeah. thinking. Yeah. So, they used two types of carbon molecules. Number 1 is called a polymer. So that's a long chain of carbon atoms that make up a uh, long skinny molecule. So it's like a chain with the links being carbon atoms. Okay. So number two is a type of carbon molecule called a fullerene. Mm -hmm. And in this case, this refers to uh, a bunch of carbon atoms which are essentially configured in a soccer ball-like structure. So these are little atoms which make up a spherical molecule of carbon. Okay, cool. 
So that's like a buckyball. So yeah, the term you're talking about there, buckyball, refers to a spherical fullerene. The, they're named after Buckminster Fullerene, who was a famous architect related to, uh, he, was, he was famous for his geodesic domes. Oh, okay. And uh, the structure of these molecules kind of looks like his domes that he designed. Cool. Yeah. Um, the Biodome in Montreal. Oh, awesome. That's was designed our, by Buckminster Fullerene. It's our cover photo on Facebook. Buckminster Fuller, not Fullerene. That's the thing. Fuller is his name. Cool. Anyways, so these two carbon molecules work together. The polymer can absorb sunlight and pass electrons to the fullerene. So we've got these long chains, okay. which are absorbing sunlight. That sunlight is exciting electrons in the chains. And they're then being passed to these spherical balls. Okay, cool. That sounds really neat. It is really <laughs> neat. Now, let me be clear about something. That is all that's happened so far. Okay. So far, this study has an aqueous solution of these two molecules, and they find that if excited by light, electrons can pass from those polymers to those fullerenes. Okay. Now, the cool thing is that these charges can stay separated. They can stay separated from days to weeks. So wait, which charges? These are the charges being passed from the polymers to the fullerenes. Okay. Cool. Right? So you can pass the charge from one to the other, and in this aqueous solution, so essentially these molecules are floating in water, the charges stay separated. Okay, so these, these fullerenes are floating around with, the, with a ne strong negative charge. Precisely. Oh, cool. Interesting. So, I mean, those days to weeks of charge separation is compared to fractions of a second in modern solar panels. Yeah, that's amazing. That's like not, not only is it probably more efficient, I guess, but that's like a built-in battery. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, that's what I thought initially. And I don't believe you can have a built-in battery with this. Okay. Right? Because to have a built-in battery, you need a lot of charge to say separated. Okay. Which, yeah, which I assume would require a lot of the solution. Yeah. This is enough right. charge to start your current. Yeah. And to keep your current going in a very efficient manner. But it's not enough charge to power something on its own. Okay, no, that totally makes sense. So it doesn't solve the storage issue of solar panels, but it does do a lot towards the efficiency issue. Okay. And, as you mentioned earlier, it does something towards the cost issue as well. Right. Because it's made of carbon, not silicon. Okay, yeah, that's really cool. So... A big disclaimer, because this is something that a lot of the media coverage of this story really missed. These are molecules floating in an aqueous solution. These have not been incorporated into any solar panels anywhere. <laughs> so they're not even at the stage where they've formed closed circuits and are generating electricity from right. this yet. This is just proof of concept, really. This is purely proof of concept, but it's a really cool proof of concept. Cool. And the researchers say they're already working on the next step, which would be to get this into a solar panel. That's really awesome. So it's promising early stages towards better solar panels in the future. Cool. Um, any sense of how long that would take? No idea. <laughs> this, is, this is really early stage stuff. Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah, when you have a study that's just doing that sort of proof of concept stuff, it's really early along in the technology area. Oh, yeah, yeah. for sure. Oh, yeah. That's very cool, though. I think we all want to live in a future where there's like accessible, renewable energy like that, right? Yeah, but but we don't live there yet. Well, it's just not practical right now. So that is really cool. Yeah, I love that turning to turning to nature to find the answers for this stuff. Yeah, exactly. 
nature does it well that's awesome hopefully yeah. uh we'll see some more research on this soon then yeah i agree cool shall we move on cool yeah So we're going to talk about some social science research that's been done recently. Um, All right. I realized when researching this is not an area that we actually talk about a lot on the podcast. It's a little bit off our off our beaten track. Yeah, we tend to favor more sort of quote unquote hard sciences. So this was kind of a nice little change. All right. So this is a study out of the UK and some researchers at the University of Birmingham wanted to look into the relationship between emotional recognition and criminal behavior. All right. So this is emotional recognition in terms of being able to recognize other people's emotions by looking at them. Right. I see you're happy. I see you're angry. I see you're excited to tell me about the study. Yeah. So what they were curious about is whether some criminals were behaving in that way, partially due to a lack of being able to interpret people's emotional reactions. Okay. So how the heck do you test this? Yeah, that sounds difficult. <laughs> yeah. Well, what they ended up doing is they went to a group of juvenile offenders in the UK. Okay. Um, so these were these were young boys, ages 12 to 18, who were being basically run through the system after being caught or convicted of doing some offense. All right. So they, they were all in the process of receiving standard interventions for whatever nefarious activity they were up to. And the researchers managed to get a group of 50 of them to participate in the study. Okay. So the basic structure and premise of the study is that they would take a group of these boys and they would test their ability to recognize emotions on people's faces visually. Then they'd put a group of them through a program to train them to better understand and recognize emotions and then test them again and see whether they improved. And then after a little while, observe whether or not they were likely to reoffend. Okay, so figure out how good they are at identifying emotions, mm -hmm. try to teach them to be better, test them again to verify that the teaching worked, mm -hmm. and then watch them for a while to see if the teaching actually helped any change in criminal behavior. Yeah, exactly. So this is n okay. nothing to do with telling them what's good and what's bad. There's no morality involved here. There's no saying, hey, don't make people have this emotion. Don't make people sad or scared. It's none of that. It's just look at this face what is this person, what emotions are this person exhibiting and training them to be better at that. Okay. Because the hypothesis is really that some of these juvenile offenders are behaving that way because they aren't able to properly recognize expressions of fear or disgust or sadness on people's faces um, who end up being their victims in some cases. Mm -hmm. So they split this group in half. So 24 of them were in the training group and 26 were in the control group. Before the study started, both of these groups of kids displayed really poor fear, sadness, and anger recognition. Like poor compared to the general population? Exactly. Poor compared okay. to non-criminal peers. Okay. They, they generally had a hard time differentiating those emotions from other facial expressions when, when presented with them visually. Both groups were tested at the beginning and then after about a month, but only the training group was given this emotion training in between. Okay. So... This test to see how they were at recognizing emotional facial expressions um, mm -hmm. used something called the facial emotional recognition measure, or FER. And what that is, is 150 slides presented on a laptop to these kids displaying different facial expressions. And each target would display either a neutral expression or one of the five basic emotions in this study, happy, sad, 
anger, fear, or disgust. Okay. And then they would display the faces at 25%, 50%, 75%, and 100% intensity. So different degrees of intensity for those different expressions. Are these just agreed upon by like a general consensus of other people beforehand? Or how do they figure that out? This is a measure that was created a while ago and is used for a lot of studies looking at how well people can recognize emotions. So do people like vote on like that's a 100% fear face, that's a 50% fear face? No, actually, they have photos from this of the same person displaying an extremely frightened face, and then a completely neutral face. Yeah. And they use a morphing software to pick a point in between so they can actually dial in exactly what percent fear that is oh it's pretty it's pretty cool actually yeah okay so these kids are shown these faces and they're asked what emotion they're showing and as i mentioned before none of the kids did very well at the beginning Mm -hmm. so then the researchers got into training the way the training worked is they got the participants to identify the emotional expressions on a face and then to do things like describing an event that's made them feel that way or mimicking the emotion in front of a mirror. Oh, trying to relate themselves to what they're observing in the picture. Exactly. What makes people look like this? What what could okay. what would you do? What would you think of to make yourself look like that? Mm-hmm. They were told to focus on specific features of an emotional face and select the right description of that feature from a few options as well. So like how eyes look when they're sad or how your mouth tends to look when you're happy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it actually wasn't a lot of training. Altogether, it was only about two hours over two or three sessions. Okay, that's, yeah, it's not a lot at all. Yeah, not a huge amount of time at all. And this was, uh, as I mentioned, over about a month was the was the period of time in between the first and the second test. So when we did get to the second test, it seemed like the training did actually work pretty well. The training group improved recognition of fear, sadness, anger, and happiness considerably. Okay. So they were they were better at recognizing those emotions after they'd done the training. Um, right. Interestingly, even though it was only a month, the control group got worse at recognizing pretty much everything. Oh, in, yes. Interesting. In just a month and having already taken the test, they still had um, not dramatically, but slightly worse scores than they did at the beginning. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Any thought of why? I, I don't really know why that would be. Um, okay. I, I have no idea. I don't think the researchers really speculated in the study from what I saw. Yeah. So the big question here is, did they reoffend? Did the trained kids reoffend? What was the result in terms of their actual behavior afterwards? Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm curious. I want to put this to you. What, what What's your guess? You know, I, I like the hypothesis. I'd like to think that, you know, offenses went down afterwards. But it all comes down in my mind to the fact that if they only got two hours of training, I don't I don't see that being particularly effective. So I, I wouldn't think they'd see much of a difference. Well, interestingly, yeah. both groups showed a reduction in crime rates. Okay. Which was attributed to the fact that they were both being watched quite closely afterwards <laughs> to see whether they would reoffend. Right. However, only the training group showed a reduction in the severity of their crimes. Oh, okay. So the training group committed less violent crimes, less physical aggression, and tended towards tended more towards theft and criminal damage than things that actually caused physical harm to people. Hmm, interesting. That's that's a pretty interesting result. And if reading the discussion at the end of the paper, the researchers are pretty they're they're excited by the results, but they really aren't totally sure how to interpret them. Hmm. I mean, it kind of makes sense that something like theft isn't something that you know, affects someone face to face usually. Mm-hmm. So that kind of makes sense. It definitely could indicate that learning to recognize these facial expressions actually does improve the empathy that these kids have and reduce their likelihood of of committing more violent crimes, even if it doesn't generally improve their morality. Yeah, it might improve their empathy. Interesting. 
Yeah, so it's a, it's a really cool study. And it's it is a yeah. preliminary one. So I'd like to see I'd like to see more of this. Yeah, the sample size is small, but yeah. if it's only two hours of training, then that's something that could be implemented on a larger scale. Yeah, quite well, easily. That's the thing is it's the results were pretty small but significant. Mm-hmm. But they were small and significant with a really, really tiny amount of actual time invested in terms of the training. Yeah. Right? This is reducing a bunch of violent crime by spending two hours just teaching kids about faces. That's impressive. That, But that actually jumps to one of the possible issues I have with this study that jumped out at me. Okay. Is that I, I didn't feel like the control group was really a proper control group. Because in any good study, the control group should have all the same conditions as the training group mm-hmm. except for the active ingredient so to speak right right the idea that if you're testing a drug that the control group gets a drug that tastes and feels and looks the same way that the actual drug gets right the, the, yeah. the placebo is effectively the same aside from the active ingredient so you think they should get some sort of fake training well that's the thing is that there was there was no fake training or anything like that of any kind so yeah. the kids who were in the control group did a test at the beginning and then had no contact with the researchers for around a month and then had the closing test. Right. Whereas the, the training group had a couple hours. They had a couple chances to come back and just interact with humans. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a part of me that feels like maybe even just that small bit of social interaction with people who aren't judging you might make a bit of difference as well. Yeah. So maybe give, give the control group some sort of counseling session that's not directed towards facial expressions yeah. but have them come in and learn yeah. literally anything else i i just would yeah. have liked like you know test them on types of cows or something like that yeah um that that's the only thing i find disappointing about this study is that because they're the control group was not treated the same way as the training group i'm just just that much more skeptical about the results. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Um, there were also a couple other issues. Like, as you say, the study size is small and the the, con- mm-hmm. the groups weren't totally random. They were partially based on the availability to attend the training sessions, which also could skew the results. Uh, yeah. But yeah. it's still cool. I'd still like to see it kind of done again in a bit more detail. Yeah. So, yeah, just a little bit, a little bit of social science for you today. Promising early results. Yeah. And also, it, it's worth like that, that discussion about the control groups is interesting and important too because um, it's something that people don't often think about they go oh this study came up with these results and they don't look at it and go but these are the places where the problems are. right so that's yeah something worth thinking about in all of the studies that we read very cool Okay, well, that's it for this week. We've got links to all the studies we discussed and more in this episode's show notes. You can find those on our website, doubleblindscience.com. We hope you've enjoyed our exploration of this week's news. Check back next week. We've got two new and exciting stories coming up for you. Did you see something in the news that you want us to talk about? Maybe a headline that seems too good to be true or a story that no one's explained clearly enough? Give us a shout by email, stories at doubleblindscience.com or tweet us on the Twitter, at DoubleBlindSCI. Thanks. See you next week.